Luke chapter 10, uh, as we said last week, is kind of like this, this pivotal point in the Gospel of Luke. It's a turning point for us. Because up until this point, Jesus has been mostly talking about who he is. He's been making these claims again and again and again, saying, here's who I am. Look at my miracles. Look at my power. Look at my authority. He's been uh, declaring who he is again and again uh, through chapter 9. But now as we come to, to the, the tail end of 9 and the beginning of 10, what you begin to see is that he starts now speaking about what it means to, to be a follower, to be a disciple, what it means to, to encounter him. If you recall, he ends kind of the, the last section of chapter 9 by laying out the cost of actually following him, that you've got to count the cost, that you've got to really realize what you're getting into. Now, up until this point, uh, he has specifically called out, uh, you know, 12 that he called to follow him that he engaged as his disciples. Uh, but then he had a broader following, a much larger following, and he, he's been telling them, here's what it takes uh, to uh, follow me. And now, uh, we've, in, the, in the last section that we looked at in the beginning of chapter 10, he's began to, to gather together this larger group of people. It, there's more work to be done beyond the, uh, beyond the 12. The, the word needs to get out. The, the message needs to go to the ends of the earth, the gospel message of the inbreaking kingdom of God, that Jesus' rule and reign is coming, that God is doing what he promised, needs to go out. And so he gathers together 72, we're told, in chapter 10. And, and if you see there, he gives them instructions in how they should go out two by two. They should go out with, uh, without any supplies, no knapsack. They shouldn't go with a, a, a wallet or anything. They shouldn't go with, uh, with food. But they are to go and they are to depend wholly on the Lord's provision. They're to go out and, and to do this work of, of declaring the kingdom of God. And he tells them that, that the harvest is ready to be collected, but the laborers are few. He's all about helping people meet him. He wants people to meet him. If he is who he says he is, which he's been saying for nine chapters, here's who I am. If he is indeed who he says he is, then we would want people to know about him. We would want people to go out and, and to find out who he is so that way they can have an encounter with him. And so he commissions this group of people and he says, let's go, guys. I'm going to send you 72 out. I'm going to send you out, out into, the, into, the, uh, into the world to go and make who I am known. But he tells them this. He says, go your way, verse 10, or chapter 10, verse 3. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. So he doesn't tell them it's going to be easy. He tells them it's going to be difficult. He tells them it's going to be dangerous. But he tells them they're going to be equipped. That they will have what they need. Because everywhere they go, even though they are lambs in the midst of wolves, it is the great shepherd who goes with them, who protects them. They are preparing the way for the great shepherd to walk behind. Uh, and, and, and they will uh, pave the way for his message. And so he's been telling them, here's the deal. This is your job. This is your task. This is what you and I ought to be doing as God's people. This commission, uh, in a sense, continues on to us as we spoke about in community group this week, looking at Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, where Jesus commissions his disciples to go and make disciples uh, in this world at this time teaching them, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He commissions us to go and be heralds of the good news, the gospel that he is here and that everything is changed as a result. And so he tells them, but there are going to be a group of people that they don't really want to hear it. They don't want to listen to you. 
And so as we, as we roll into our section this morning, uh, we consider the words of Jesus when he says in verse, chapter 10, verse 10, but whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into the streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. So Jesus goes out and he says, you guys are going to go out and there's some people who don't want to hear the message. They don't want to receive what you have to say. They will hear it, but they'll say, no thanks, that's not for us. And Jesus says, that's no problem if they don't want to receive it. Don't force them to receive it. You don't need to bring in like this army of people and be like, you will receive this. No. He says, that's their choice. Let them be. He says, in fact, you can, you can show them that you are, are, are fine with leaving them exactly as it is. You can leave every speck of dust that you had there on your sandals. You could just be like, oh, okay, well, that's going to stay here. I'm not taking anything from you guys. I'm not, I'm not bringing that out. We're separating completely. You guys go ahead and have your way. That's what you really want. Now, sitting behind this, of course, as the disciples are hearing this for the first time, uh, is, of course, what Jesus told them earlier. If you flip all the way back to chapter 9, he tells them, if you would save your life, you will lose it. But if you lose your life for his sake, you will save it. So Jesus is telling them, let them do their thing, but in, in a sense, trying to save themselves, trying to separate themselves from them, they're actually doing more harm. By trying to, to let them have their own way, they want to save themselves from me. They don't want any part of me. That's fine. But it's going to come back to them. It's going to be a problem. So much so that Jesus tells them that it's going to be better for the city of Sodom, which was one of the most wicked cities uh, in, in all of Israel. It, it would be better for, for uh, the city of Sodom than it would be for these people who reject him. He goes on now in our text this morning to speak to a few other cities. And he gives us more insight into, like, why this is so intense. As we read together, we, re we read this. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have, been repented, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. So Jesus speaks forth these woes. These are, these are warnings here. He's bringing forth a warning. This is not a word of condemnation right now. It's not time to judge. This is a word of warning. That's when, when he's saying woe there, he's not saying like, oh, it's, it's done. It's a done deal. It's finished. He's bringing it out and he's saying, here's something that you ought to pay attention to. I'm giving you a warning. I'm bringing this to your, to your attention so you can try to, to respond, to make a change. And these specific uh, warnings are directed against these cities uh, in the Galilee region. These are directed against them because they have responded again and again very poorly to what Jesus has been saying about himself. By contrast, he brings in these other cities, Tyre and Sidon. These are two cities that you find all throughout the Old Testament. Like, they're mentioned in so many sections of the Old Testament. And they're often um, portrayed and cast as these absolutely unruly, unrighteous cities. So much so that judgment is said to come down on them, and it's going to be uh, coming down in such a fierce way that, that the city will be completely reduced to ruin, and it will be a flat spot where, where fishermen spread out their nets. Like, it's going to be absolutely uh, destroyed, is, is kind of what the, what the scriptures were talking about here. And Jesus says, 
you, you, you guys are foolish in these cities. Chorazin, Bethsaida. Because if I did the works here that, that I've done in your cities, if I went to Tyre and Sidon, who are called out as the most unrighteous cities, they would have, they would have saw what I've done and said, we absolutely recognize who you are. We absolutely want to follow you. He's using this as a contrast of judgment upon these cities that would have thought themselves to be supreme, superior, righteous, have the right way to think about things. He says they would have repented long, long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. Of course, this is an act of repentance there, the description of uh, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. It would have kind of been a common uh, practice at the time when one was willing to uh, have a physical demonstration that they were uh, mourning, that they were grieving, that they were uh, turning over um, their, their attitude. They were moving into humility. They would uh, wear this very uncomfortable kind of a, a animal skin kind of like basically like tunic. And then and basically they, they would take the, the dust of the earth, the ashes, and, and heap it and throw it up and make themselves dirty to demonstrate that they, they were in mourning. And he says, Jesus says, these unrighteous cities, Tyre and Sidon, that are called out, they demonstrate, he says, if they saw this, they would demonstrate more spiritual discernment than you, cities of Israel. It's a rebuke that's being brought to them. Now, he says this again so that he's making it clear to his disciples because he's, remember, these 72 are about to go out. So he says this to them so that way they can go out expecting with the, with the understanding that, like, hey, like, you might be rejected. It's pretty tough out there. You could face hardship. You could face difficulties. Even though you have power, even though you've been commissioned, you could go out and be rejected. He turns his attention to probably the most important city among these in verse 15. He says, And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? Now, this specific city gets called out last. This city gets the place of prominence because this is the home base for Jesus' ministry. He did more work in this city than almost all the other cities. Like, they would have had the most opportunity to see him do his thing, to declare who he is. They are accountable for the most because they've witnessed the most. They've seen much of Jesus' power, much of his authority. They had every opportunity to respond to who he is and to be exalted to the heavens. And he speaks to their attitude. He says, you, Capernaum, do you think that you're going to be exalted to the heavens? You guys think that you're in a good spot? He tells the disciples, don't just assume that because we were there and we've been, we've been rolling there, we've been uh, showing miracles and demonstrating who we are and declaring who we are. Don't just think you're going to roll in there and people are going to be like, oh yeah, of course, we know Jesus. Let's go. But he doesn't say, he says, that's not how it's going to go. Instead, he says, you shall be brought down to Hades. Now, in the Bible, uh, in the scriptures, you find that Hades is, is spoken of as a place where uh, the unrighteous reside. 
It's in the in the Old Testament. It's it's called Sheol. It's it's this spot that's that's meant to mark out those who are are unclean, who are separate from God, who have rejected Him, who are put outside of the people of Israel, who are put outside of the city. He says, "You guys think that you're in a good spot, but you have to actually consider: Are you going to be exalted?" If you continue on the path that you're on, you will be brought down to Hades. You will go with the unrighteous. And he finishes with this word for uh, the disciples, these 72 who are going to go out in verse 16. The one who hears you, hears me. And the one who rejects you, rejects me. And the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me, right? So I love this like kind of little logical connection, this logical flow here. He's like, look, let me just put the, the, the hierarchy in place. Let's put the, the chain of, uh, of authority here so that way you know what's really happening. And this is super helpful for us because it gives us boldness as we understand this. This is not about you, right? You're involved in this. God's people are involved in this. But this is not about you. It's never about you. Because we are called out, as last, we looked at last week, uh, as we were studying, we looked at, we have our messengers, called out as messengers, ambassadors for Christ. We take the message to the world. We are not the message. We are the messenger. We take what has been given to us, delivered to us, and we deliver it. We pass this along. Messengers, your job is to communicate the message. You share what's happening. You are not responsible for how the message is received. You're not responsible for people like the message. You're not responsible if people are happy about hearing the message. You just deliver the message. That's it. It's your only job. It's fine if they don't like the message. It's fine if they don't like you. Your job is just communicate the message. Now, again, we do want to communicate the message in the most uh, effective and winsome way possible. We want to do it in such a way that is appealing we want to do it in such a way that is effective. It's one of the, the absolute core reasons why, again and again and again, and I say this every single week, that we are absolutely obsessed with just talking about how amazing Jesus is. Because I don't want people to come away with, like, thinking, like, oh, well, like, you know, it's like kind of like a cool guy. Like, they seem, like, okay, kind of like they kind of, like, think Jesus, like, might be cool. No, I want, I want it to be unclear, understood that, like, we're obsessed. Like, we're just super obsessed. Like, Jesus is amazing. And, we, and I want everyone else to think that Jesus is amazing. And I want to pass that along, that excitement. And so I, I, want, I want everyone to understand where we're coming from. And this is, this is what we want to pass along, as we've talked about in the previous weeks. You take the message of what Jesus has done for you. You communicate the message of what he's done for you, your story. I was lost, and now I'm found. I was dead, and I've been raised to life. Jesus tells us, you take your message that he has given to you as the messenger. You explain it. You communicate it. And he says that there are those who will hear to receive the message, uh, to receive the messenger, to say, hey, I'm, I'm interested in hearing what you have to say, is to receive the message to reject the messenger and to say, no thanks, I'm not here for that, I don't want any part of that, is to reject the message. You reject the messenger, you reject the message. But more than that, Jesus tells us, 
that those who reject his messengers reject him. And not only him, but the Father. So there's a, a larger thing happening there. It's not about you. It's about them rejecting or receiving the Father. So how does this play out? Okay, how does this play out? The practicality of this is super important. Because you have a job. You have this commission. You have what you're supposed to do. Go out and communicate the message. Now, as we've talked about in previous weeks, communicating the message is an act, a demonstration of worship. Because all you're doing is saying, look at how glorious Jesus is. That's it. That's all it is. It's not a practical task. You're just lifting him up and saying, here's who he is. Look how awesome he is. You're acting in worship when you ex explain, when you communicate who he is. When you lift him up and say, he's better than everything else that you could possibly encounter, that you could possibly deal with. The things that you're interested in, he is so much better. It's an act of worship. It's important. Because along the path to discipleship, there are a lot of distractions. And all those distractions often tend to be idols, things that we begin to focus on and worship instead. Okay, and this is exactly what happens uh, as we move through the text. Look at uh, what happens as the result of this mission. Verse 17. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. So they come back. They're super pumped. They go out. They got this, th this, this mission from Jesus. Hey, it might be difficult out there. Go out, do your thing. Uh, go tell people about me. They go out. They do it. They come back. They're just pumped, super excited, having a great time. They come back with joy. Okay, here's number one, what you need to know. The Lord is going to do his thing. He's at work. It's his work. He's accomplishing it. He sends them out. He gets it done. Number two, they return with joy, and we see their focus on what they're excited about. They're excited. They're rejoicing, but their excitement focuses on their authority over demons. We got cool power. This is awesome. We went out, like we were like a bunch of nobodies, and then we went out and we did cool stuff and like things that we would normally be afraid of, like we, we won. We got into a battle that we thought we were going to lose and we won. Okay, so what do you, what do you, how do you respond to that? You see like all of your people coming back and like they're super excited about it. Like, okay, you gave them a job to do. They go out, they come back, they're excited. Yeah, like, we did it. Here's what Jesus says. Here's his response, right? Because kind of a curious response here. Verse 18, he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Like, you're like, really, are we like speaking in riddles here, Jesus? Like, what's going on? Like, like wouldn't you be like, oh, great job, guys. You did wonderful like hey like why don't you tell me a little bit more about your story so we can kind of figure it out and like I can help you finesse it like not none of that they say hey we can cast out demons we have power over demons and Jesus says um I saw I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven like this is the response like what's going on and then he says behold I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Okay, so first let's connect those two before we connect the rest. So he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning. Then he says, if you guys thought you had power over 
uh, over demons, check this out. He says in verse 19, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all, uh, all power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. So he, he doubles down. He tells them more. Now, okay, number one, when he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven, of course he's coming back and saying, you guys, um, yes, you have power over the enemy because I saw Satan fall. I, I was there from the beginning of creation. I saw when, when he would have been more powerful. I saw, I saw a, a, a point. I was a witness to this. I existed before the universe began. He's making, one, a massive claim of, of being the Savior, of being God again here. He says, I've, I witnessed this. So, yes, I'm not surprised that there's power that I'm giving to you that is more powerful than Satan. So that's one thing that's happening. He's, he says, yes, that's the case. If Jesus is who he says he is, he tells him, guys, if, if I really am who I say I am, I'm reigning supreme, my kingdom's here, my kingdom's coming. Of course you're going to have the authority that I give to you that's more powerful than these other things. But also, his notes uh, that he gives to them he kind of breaks it down in such a way to give them their own warning. Just as he warned uh, Bethsaida, just as he warned Capernaum, so the disciples received this warning. They are witnesses to his power, but do they receive the message? They have seen him demonstrate the power. They've seen the power that belongs to him in them using the power. But do they recognize who he is? Are they going to receive what he's saying? Or they are, going to be like, are they going to be like these other cities? When Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven, he's remarking uh, on the sin, that attitude of pride that resulted in the fall of, of Satan in the first place. As he was uh, considered uh, before he was, um, you know, cast out of heaven, Satan was among the angels. And there he decided he wanted to be God. He wanted to be, to be pride. or His pride overtook him, and he wanted to, to rule and reign. He wanted to be supreme. I want to do my own thing. And so he's, he's cast out. This resulted in his fall. And so the disciples are told by Jesus, uh, I saw Satan fall like lightning from, from heaven. It was his pride that puffed him up, that, that caused him to be put out. Don't be puffed up with power, guys. You guys went on this mission, you're coming back, and you guys think you're hot stuff because you have power over demons. Don't be, don't be focusing on the wrong thing. Okay, but remember, he's told them simultaneously, don't be focused on the wrong thing. Like, you guys, I saw Satan fall like lightning as this response to them being excited. But then he tells them even more so, but also I gave you more authority. <laughs> I, gave you, I gave you more than what you realized before. 
You guys can trample on serpents and scorpions and, and you have the ability to, uh, to operate over all evil power and nothing's going to hurt you. Like, basically, they're told, like, you're invincible. Like, what? So you tell me, don't be puffed up, but I'm invincible. How are those going to square out? You, he's calling them to this. They need to be both confident in their empowerment for the mission, just like we do. We need to be confident in our empowerment that we have what we need to obey him, that he is with us, that he has equipped us to walk with him daily for his glory. But also, we need to be assured of our standing with God. So Jesus gives these further instructions, giving them the confidence for empowerment in their mission. He tells them, hey, the authority that I've given to you, it goes beyond. And he draws this, this description of, of them being able to trample on serpents and scorpions. He pulls this straight from the Old Testament. Right? He's basically telling them, as God protected the, the people, his own people in the wilderness, so I'm going to protect you. Straight from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 14 he says, "The Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of excuse me, out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground when there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock." So he he, go, he pulls out of this passage where he's like, "The things that you guys were afraid of when you were rescued and you had nothing, you were enslaved. The Lord was with you. He protected you." The entire time. You guys were fine. And he says to them now, you're going to be fine when I send you out. Now the point is this. This is not a passage that is prescriptive for us to say, hey, like, let's go find some snakes and scorpions and like get crazy. Like that's not the goal here. The goal, uh, or the description here, is demonstrative of God's attitude and heart towards his people that he sends out into mission. It's, it's a picture for them. These might have been real, uh, actual um, situations that they would encounter. They would have encountered uh, serpents and scorpions. Like, we don't even have scorpions in this area, right? So, like, that doesn't make any sense. But it's the type of threat that these things would pose to those who are being sent out. You're being sent out. You don't have a, a, a place to stay. You're going to be rejected. He tells them, don't be afraid. You have what you need. Nothing can really hurt you. But he gives them also assurance. He tells them you're empowered, but then he also offers assurance. Look at verse 20. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So when the disciples go out, they're commissioned. He gives them the power, the ability to go do this work. They go out, they come back, and they say, Lord, even the demons are subject to us. They're just like pumped. They're so excited about this. And Jesus says, don't rejoice in this. He hears them come back and he says, you guys, this doesn't sound right. This is not the way to go about it. It sounds like you guys are excited, 
you're rejoicing, you're pumped up. But it's rooted in your demonstration of power. It's rooted in your successes. And Jesus points this out to them. He says, I don't like where this is coming from. I don't like what you're doing with this. I sent you out to go out on this mission, and you guys go out, and you have power over demons, you cast out demons, and you come back and you say, we cast out demons. Now, as we hear that, we're like, well, what's wrong with that? Like, doesn't that seem like a good thing? Like, earlier in the, earlier in the chapter, uh, or not in the chapter, earlier in the gospel, we see that the disciples are with Jesus, and they're saying, hey, Jesus, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And Jesus is like, yeah, just like, let him be. He was fine with it then, so what's going on now? It didn't, it didn't seem like it was an issue then. He didn't even care that it was like somebody who wasn't really his actual, like, super close follower. So what's the deal now? What's wrong with going out and doing good things, participating in the mission and things that seem positive, that seem beneficial, that seem like they help people? What's wrong with that? What's wrong with going out on the mission and being excited that you had victory, that you did stuff that seemed to be helpful and beneficial? Nothing, really. It's mainly about the attitude. They're excited about the power, but they don't come back and speak about what was accomplished through that power. They don't come back speaking of, of men and women who've been freed from bondage. They don't come back and speak of Oh, we cast out demons, and, and, and there were people who were restored, and, and, and there's flourishing among these people who were once overtaken. It's not about the people that they've helped. It's about the power that they've exercised. They're, they're like, oh, yeah, I did, I did good things. Their emphasis is on power. It's on their ability to demonstrate their authority in the spiritual realm. It's not the emphasis that Jesus wants them to have. Right? This is why he doesn't take away the power from them. Instead, he gives them more insight into their authority. He doesn't say, you guys, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Clearly, you guys can't handle this. So, like, I'm revoking that, and now you have no power. That's not how he deals with it. He says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Also, you can trample on serpents and scorpions. So now, he tells them, he finishes and wraps up his emphasis in verse 20, saying, do not rejoice in this. Right? There's that word right before that, nevertheless. Here's some other cool stuff. Here's Tom empowering you and working in you. Nevertheless, that's not your focus. That's like a side thing that's like, Something that you don't even have to pay attention to. That's just more to like give you confidence that like you can keep going. But don't focus there. He says, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this. That the spirits are subject to you. Don't make this the focus of your life. Don't make this your identity. Instead, he says, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Okay, so let's break down this last little phrase here. Because this is really the payoff. This is what he's been getting at this whole time. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. 
he's speaking of uh, what you may be familiar with as something called the book of life. This would have been the list that is kept of who belongs to God, that you are his, that you are his child. But this would have, have uh, had a larger impact in their minds than in our minds, because right now to, to get your name on a list is like not that really big of a deal, right? Like I could pull out my phone and type everyone's name down in a list and be like, oh, look, I got your name in a list, right? But at this time, to have your name written down, inscribed, to have it collected in an official way meant more. It meant that you were somebody, that you were somebody important, that you had something. Within uh, these towns, there would have been uh, registries of people. They would have taken a census, and they didn't just count everybody in the census. The people who were written down, they were the people who were notable. Right? If you're just like a, a, a random person and you, 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 know, you were a beggar, you didn't get written down the census. Your name did not go on the roll. Those who could pay taxes, those who were notable, those who could be counted on, those are the people who got to be in the census. Those are the people who got to be on the list. If you had property, we want to make sure that we record that. Who has rights? Who has privileges? You need to have status in order to be in the list, right? I mean, this is not completely foreign to us today, right? There's, you want to go to, uh, you know, you want to go to like a movie premiere, you got to be on the, you got to be on the list. You got to be invited by one of the cast members. You want to uh, make your way out to uh, a fancy restaurant, you got to make a reservation. They're limited. You can only seat so many people. Is your name on the list? You go up and say, oh yes, my name's here. Uh, you know, my name's David. I should have a reservation for uh, 7 p.m. They're like, oh, oh, yes, we see you on the list. Somebody else who wants to dine there but doesn't have a reservation, they come, oh, I'm sorry, sir, we don't see you on the list. Here's how you can try again at another time. We're fully committed for the evening. It's the status. Oh, do you have what it takes? Have you, have you made uh, an important enough of an impact to be on the list? You have to be somebody. And so Jesus tells them, verse 20, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. You know what that is? That's, that's them coming back and saying, oh, we were nobody, but then we went out and now we can do all sorts of cool stuff and everybody in that town thinks we're awesome because they saw us freeing those people from these unclean spirits. We've got power. We should, we're ready to go out on another mission, Jesus. Send us out. Let's get it done. I'm ready to go. Good things misdirected. Good things, bad motive. That's what Jesus is getting at here. Don't rejoice in, in your power or gifting or position to get the sense that you are somebody. Don't be focused on your gifts, your talents, your, your salary, your uh, accreditations, your performance, your academics. Don't define yourself by those things. Don't make those things who you are. They're not your identity, Jesus tells us. If you do that, those things will lead to the same things that allowed Satan to fall like lightning from heaven, pride. 
It will lead, if you make these other things, the focus of your life. Being somebody, having status, it will lead you to pride, and you will respond in such uh, where you will think that you are something great. You're building an idol. You're looking to something other than God. Now, the thing with idols is this. If your idol, and you could be your own idol, friends, family could be your other idol, your, your colleagues, your, your boss. If your idol's happy, then you're happy. Because your sense of self-worth is completely wrapped up in your performance and pleasing your idol. They're good, you're good. But if your idol is unhappy, I don't like where you're going with this, I don't like how long this is taking you, I'm not sure why you keep doing it this way, you didn't give me what I needed on time, then it feels like absolute rejection. Because it's a direct attack on what you've built. I am this. I am my performance. I am my gifts. I am my ability. If somebody doesn't like that, it's a direct attack on you. So your self-worth is destroyed. And then when that happens, then the people who are serving that idol no longer like that idol, and then they start to act brutally and violently towards that idol. You don't like me? Well, I don't like you. And then it gets all nasty. But what Jesus says here is don't focus your, your efforts, don't focus your, your, um, your rejoicing on what you are going to do, your performance, your academics, your ability, your gifts, your talents. What did he say? But rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So he says, guys, if you're worried about getting your name on the list, about being somebody, this is not the way to do it. He says, instead, rejoice that you are, that your names are written in heaven. Not that they will be written, but that they are written. They are written. If you trust in Christ for salvation, it's a done deal. Your name is written in heaven, is what he's telling us here. Not will be written, but is written. Now, we live in this area, right, where you come into contact with people all the time, and this is not so much restricted to our area as much, but there's a lot of people, the common thought in life is basically like, look, I'm trying to live a good life, and at some point, you know, the scales are kind of balanced, and hopefully I'm going to do more good stuff than bad stuff, and the, the good stuff will kind of push me up, and, the, the, uh, and I'll kind of like make it on that basis, right? Like, do more good than bad. Do more bad than good. You're, gonna, you're not going to get, you know, uh, you're not going to have, um, you know, the, the return you were looking for. You're not a good person. You're not going to have the afterlife. But the reality is this. It's already been decided. It's already been decided. Jesus makes the call for you and I before we finish life. So you don't have to be worried like, hey, are my scales balancing out? He already says like, it's already done. Like, you don't need to worry about like, are the scales going to balance out? There are no scales like that. You, you don't need to worry about that. His work is finished. His work has been completed on your behalf. Your name is written in the book of life if you trust in Christ for salvation. Your name is already there. It's a matter of, are you going to receive that message? Are you going to heed the warning that he gives to Bethsaida and Capernaum? 
Are you going to respond and say, it is what you've been saying about yourself is true, Jesus. And I realize that I can only find life in you. I can only be rescued through you and your work. I'm going to lose my identity for your sake. And I will take on your identity. In fact, this is what Jesus himself does for us at the cross. He loses his identity as the sinless Son of God, taking upon the sins of humanity so that you and I might be, as the Apostle Paul puts it, uh, made righteous. He is made poor so that we might become rich and clothed in his robes of righteousness. That we might be made clean, that sinners might go free. He lost his identity so that your identity could be secured. He speaks from experience and says, it's already been done because he knows that he's going to be faithful to the end. He's going to finish the work. He's going to make it so that way your name can be written. And so this is why he tells them, guys, don't get distracted with the mission. Don't get distracted with trying to do cool things, making a name for yourself or participating, right? Almost every single time I, I've, I've read this passage, almost anytime somebody has a, a, a question for me about this passage, it's almost 100% of the time like, well, how come we can't walk on snakes and scorpions today? 100% of the time. Everyone's in the same spot, distracted. Like, like are we meant to walk on snakes and scorpions? This, you're missing the point. It's not about that. If you're obsessed with the snakes and the scorpions and like trying to like not get hurt, you totally missed the boat. Like that's not what's happening. This is about how Jesus has already done the work. You don't need to worry about the snakes and scorpions because he already dealt with it. This is about you being obsessed with the fact that he's already written your name. That's the thing that's to give you joy. That's the thing that's to control your life, that you don't have to struggle to make an identity for yourself because it's already been given to you graciously, lovingly by the Savior. He knows who you are. He knows you from eternity past and intentionally, purposefully gave his life so that you might be known and written in his book. The question that we again face is, will we heed the message? Will we respond to him and say, you are who you said you are. I want to find my identity in you. I want to follow the king. Let's pray and we will respond together. Lord, we are grateful for your work and kindness in our lives. We're grateful that you were willing to give up your life on our behalf so that we might go free. That you would become a servant in the form of man obedient to the Father to the point of death. We see that your work has been accomplished and that you've been raised for our justification, that you've been raised from the dead so that we might be called sons and daughters of God and that you've accomplished this in full view so that the world might see your kindness and your faithfulness. 
And so, Lord, we join in with all of creation, declaring who you are, and acknowledging that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so, Lord, we want to join in to that time of response now. And so, Lord, direct our minds and our hearts to you. We love you. Amen.